Good afternoon, everybody. This is Don Fox on the Weekend Report, and this is the third installment of our uh, series with Bill Fink of CrystalGuinea.org. Uh, we're talking about uh, the end times, and then, uh, in order to, to do that properly, we covered you know some of the uh, ancient history of uh, of our people, uh, and uh, today's installment is going to cover you know the period around the French Revolution and, and back a bit. So we're moving closer towards modern times here, and uh, I think we were discussing before the show uh, maybe a good place to start is just kind of a brief recap here of uh, uh, the Book of Revelation. And uh, with that said, we'll uh, welcome in uh, Mr. William Fink. Hello, Don. Praise Christ. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's great to have you back, Bill. And uh, uh, I'm getting a lot of positive reviews on on these shows, and uh, people are really uh, uh, eager to hear what you have to say. Well, that's wonderful. I I hope they do sit and and not only consider what I'm saying, but go to my website and and actually read some of my articles and and examine it and and look at the citations and check things out for themselves that's important what we need are are not merely listeners and followers what we need students who who are willing to examine the truth of these things and act upon it and and help spread the word that's what we really need that the hour is late for the maintenance of white civilization as we know it and if we don't begin to 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 act in um to to act in in tangible means in reaction to it we're done we're just done uh, i mean it might take four five six more generations of race mixing and, and the whole world will be like egypt or India, even worse. Wow, did you ever see India? What it really looks like? Yeah, I've seen a few pictures. I have not been there. Uh, yeah, but yeah no, the, the, hour, the there. hour is getting very late. Um, it, we're a lot farther along, I think, than a lot of people might think. Well, well, absolutely, because it's it, it's um, as more and more people are, are race mixing and accepting this um, Jewish multicultural paradigm which is actually a destroyer of all cultures that then the the farther down the hill we slide and and it's sort of like it it picks up momentum it it, it it's not just a domino effect it it's exponentially greater with each passing generation with each 10 years the, the destruction to our society it is is going to be a tipping point where there's a point of no return. I mean, we're not there yet, but it, it's rapidly approaching. Yeah, but the the invasion of Europe has really uh, put us on notice here that uh, you know the time for screwing around is over. Well, well right. The the Bible. It is a um, a book of history written in advance for a certain group of people, which tells us what's going to happen, so we really don't have a choice. But it tells us that in the end, we are going to win. We are going to prevail. But it doesn't tell us 
that all we have to do is sit on our asses and do nothing in order to prevail. So <laughs> that there's a call to um, come out of her, my people, lest ye suffer her punishments. So you you could um, play dumb, monkey see, monkey do, and, and just party along with the Jews and, and the rest of the world, or you could heed the call. That That's the way it is. That's the choice we're given. So we stand up for our race and our people and our ancestors, our traditions and our heritage, or what we just stay drunk. Yeah, do we... Yeah, do we pop another beer and then uh, just, you know, watch the game? Or do we, uh, yeah, because we're going to have to fight for it. Uh, Absolutely. There's no question about it. And, you know, it, even as bleak as it looks now, this is still a fight we can win. Um, but it's going to take maximum effort, and it's going to take people getting, you know, their head out of their backside. They're going to have to turn the TV off, and they're going to have to get up off the couch. Well, the devil has been in control of our society for several hundred years now, and and they're not just going to give it up at the voting booth. (laughs) They're not. You can't outvote the Federal Reserve. The idea of auditing the Federal Reserve is absolutely ludicrous. Well, I mean, it sounds good on a certain level, but, yeah, what is it actually going to accomplish? It's going to accomplish nothing, and and it can't be done. There's no telling. Yeah, you know, at one point during the Second World War, and and this is pretty much documented fact. It, it's history. They took plates for manu- for for printing U.S. currency and sent them to the Soviets. So that the Soviets, so that Uncle Joe Stalin could print all the American dollars he wanted. He had a, a a bottomless money pit, and and they, they they allowed the Soviets to print American currency for for um for for trade with with other countries so that they they could bribe and and purchase whatever they wanted on the American taxpayers because it devalues American currency everywhere. It, it's I, I don't know. There's all, all kinds of um, horrendous horrendous trickery that has been done to our people by these creatures in charge over the past couple of centuries. That that there's no end to it. That the Federal Reserve that they they can print all the money they want and, and through electronic they're not really printing money, don't get me wrong, anymore. They just use their electronic transactions. But they're able to create all the money they want and give it to whoever they want and where's the accountability? There's no accountability. At, at a certain level, I mean, sure, lower bank officers and, and the banks that are member banks of the Federal Reserve have a degree of accountability. But at some level or other, there's no accountability because the Fed has never been supervised. And the Jews have always been in control of it. Yeah, Greenspan talked about that. You know, they, I saw an interview with him a few years ago where <clears throat> they talked about, what's your relationship with the president of the United States? And he said, well, there, there really is no relationship. We're a, we're a separate entity that doesn't answer right. to the government. We're, none of the policies that we, that we enact, you know, and take into consideration any input from any other source. 
Right, absolutely. They do what they want. Well, well, that's not really, that's part of the problem here. That's part of our revelation discussion. We're not quite at that point. I don't, you know, I don't remember what we spoke about last week. That's just the way it is. I remember talking about Daniel and a few other things. I can't prepare for these programs, and I really don't have the time to go back and listen to them listen. after they're done. Okay, but, I, I'll just say that would... we, we talked a lot about uh, the fall of Babylon towards the end of the last show, and then uh, we were going to uh, uh, touch on today, you know, maybe uh, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, you know, the, the Jew going into the pit and then uh, coming right. out of the pit. We should probably start with, with a background on the Revelation, because the Revelation is a book that if you don't, really know your Old Testament and the fulfillment and and development of Old Testament prophecy because the the Old and New Testaments are the same book. I understand that mainstream Christians are deceived into thinking it's two different books and even two different gods but that's just ludicrous and and, wow there's nothing more um, wrong than that idea. The Old Testament is the same book and the same God created the Old Testament and the New Testament and and inspired men to write these things. And the proof of, of the authenticity of the prophets is in the clear fulfillment of the prophecies. The Revelation, once you have a grip on history... Once you can identify the parties of the Bible and the Old Testament correctly from ancient history and from biblical prophecy itself, as we talked about with our discussion of Daniel chapter 2 last week, and once you understand the what, what the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel especially, but the others also, are talking about, then you can start to piece together and understand the revelation. As long as you apply the, the, the symbols and the identities of the people consistently from one book to the other, then you can have a consistent story and see what has unfolded very clearly, and then you, you might get an understanding, even though you won't be able to tell the future, you might get an understanding of what is still to come. The revelation itself, the, the image of, of, of the Ancient of Days in, in chapter 1, that the messages of to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, those messages aren't really... Um, they're not really historical. The, those, the churches existed, the Christian assemblies existed, and the messages are pertinent, but they're not a prophecy of the future. What they are is they are a prophecy of the various states of, of Christian assemblies and, and Christians in general, which have existed all through time. And the real message, the real key to the message of the seven churches is the meanings of the names of each of those churches. And when you understand the meanings of the names, because all those Greek words, Laodicea or Laodicea, Philadelphia, <coughs> Smyrna, they all have Thuatira, they all have 
a meaning in Greek. They could all be translated into English phrases that make sense. Thuatira, for instance, is heavenly sacrifice and and or heavenly altar and and um Laodicea is righteous people, but it should probably be interpreted as self-righteous people because the righteousness is the righteousness of man rather than the righteousness of God. Um, Philadelphia is brotherly love. Smyrna means anointing. And once you understand that those two particular assemblies were not criticized for anything, why weren't they criticized for anything? Because Smyrna means anointing. That's that, that represents the observation of who the true anointed people of God are. And Philadelphia means brotherly love. If you are one of the people who are included in the covenants of God, then you have the anointing of God. That's not the Jews. That's European Christians. White European Christians, in fact, descended <laughs> from, for the most part, not in total, but for the most part, from the 12 tribes of ancient Israelites. You are the anointed. And if you love your brother, your racial kinsman, then you won't be criticized by God. Because those two assemblies were not <clears throat> criticized in the messages to the seven churches. So, we get to Revelation chapter 4, talks about the throne of God, that the sovereignty of God. Chapter 5 is the Lion of Judah, that's Jesus Christ, with the seven seals and the scrolls, and those seven seals describe events that are to happen in the future. And we get to Revelation chapter 6, and it talks about four horsemen and, and the first six seals. And we have to bear in mind that this is John, the apostle, who is writing these visions, probably about 94 A.D. And and that could be found, I have at least six witnesses in early Christian writings to prove that assertion of when John wrote the Revelation. And the four horsemen depict the expansion and then the civil war and strife and eventual decay and end of the Roman Empire, which is a process that covered 1,200 years. And and it, that 1,200-year pro- process, that, that's important to keep that in, in the back of our minds, that it was approximately 1,200 and. 1200 and, and something years that was the duration of Roman power from the time that Rome was founded and, and the, the white horse period of Roman expansion all the way to the, um, the green horse period of the death of Rome, what, which occurred in the 5th century. Now, when we get to Revelation chapter 9, the fifth and sixth trumpets, and we understand the history behind the Islamic wars against Europe, Revelation chapter 9 is describing the invasions of the Arabs and and then the Turks and the destruction of the Byzantine Empire, white North Africa, Iberia, and, and other places. That's what that's describing. 
and we get to Revelation chapter 10, the opening of the book, and we have a vision in Revelation chapters 10 and 11 of the Protestant Reformation. In Revelation chapter 12, we have a separate vision which identifies the devil, Satan, the serpent, and there's multiple fulfillments of Revelation chapter 12. One of those fulfillments was in the Protestant Reformation because the Protestant Reformation ended a period of 2,500 years of tyranny, which we will discuss shortly in Revelation, when we get to Revelation chapter 13. The Protestant Reformation freed us from that tyranny, which was first under a string of empires and then under the Catholic popes. And as soon as the Protestant Reformation was born, as soon as the kingdom of heaven could have been born on earth, the great red dragon, the international Jew, poisoned it and attempted to kill it. So while Revelation chapter 12 is representative of the birth of the Christ child, it also has other fulfillments in, in, in the, um, the destruction of the liberty which man had hoped to gain when he broke away from the tyrants and, and the popes in the so-called Age of Liberty, which really began the time of Jacob's trouble. And the people behind that are the same satanic Jews who were behind the attempts and and the eventual crucifixion of Christ. Yeah, I I guess uh, maybe a quick note there would be, uh, you know, be careful what you ask for, because you may get it. Well, right. Revelation chapter 14 is a promise that God will avenge his servants. And and I'm not going to get into too many of the... um, too many of the details, but Revelation chapters 15, 16, and 17 are are where we're going and where we're at. That is descriptive. Those seven last plagues are descriptive of the conditions, the, the, the conditions of the people of God, what's happening to them, what's going on during this so-called age of liberty and time of Jacob's trouble. Revelation chapter 13 is what what I like to call an umbrella vision, right? It covers the whole period. It, it's another description of the whole period of prophecy and, and history and prophecy that began with the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2. The first beast of Revelation chapter 13 describes the history of world empires that ruled wheresoever the children of men dwelt. And that vision, both of these visions are dated. One's dated in the Revelation, the other one's dated in Daniel. But once you understand Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 are parallel visions, they're talking about the same thing that Revelation chapter 13 is also talking about, then you you could see that Daniel dates one and John dates the other. And both dates are given in a figure 
that is equivalent to what's called in, in Scripture three and a half times, a time times and half a time, or 42 months, or 1260 days. And, and when you see that three and a half times is three and a half years, it equals 1260 days. 42 months, 42 times 30, is equal to 1260. And that a day is a year in prophecy. This, the, the series of empires that ruled over the, wheresoever the children of men dwell, the Babylonian, the, the um, Persian, the Greek, the Roman, did last for about 1260 years. The Rome itself is a political entity until it was destroyed by the Goths, also lasted for approximately 1260 years. But, the second beast of Revelation chapter 13 came from the first beast. It grew out of that head that was what was killed and, and revived. That's the Roman popes, the Roman papacy. And the Holy Roman Empire was an, what was an entity of that beast. So you don't see really much about the Holy Roman Empire in the Revelation because it was really only an extension of the power of the papacy. That's why it was called the Holy Roman Empire, but it was really centered in, in Germany and Spain and France. Well, the um, at times in France anyway, not all the time. The papacy, the temporal power of the papacy, the power that the popes had over the, the, the kings and rulers of Europe, that temporal power also lasted about... 1260 years and those 1260 years were from the time that Justinian in his novels had established the papacy as a temporal power about 530 BC up until the time when Napoleon had the Pope arrested and destroyed the temporal power of the papacy about 1790 1789, I believe, or something around there, <clears throat> A.D. So so we have from, I may have said B.C., which is saying it was 530 A.D. 530 A.D. to 1790 in the time of Napoleon is about 1260 years. So so these visions, that the, um, the, the other, that, that, that 666, that mark of the beast, if you really want to identify that as the number of a man, the popes on their, that they wore this title. They wore this title on their clothing. Vicarious Filii Dei. Vicar of the Son of God in Latin. They wore that title in several places on their own vestments. They believed that they were the replacement for the Son of God on earth. That they were, that the sole pontiff, which actually comes from a word which means bridge. To God. And, and the popes, yeah, this is all really arrogant once you truly understand scripture. The pope, the papacy, the whole idea was built on arrogance. <laughs> the, the vicar of the Son of God, Vicarius Filii Dei, when you look at those letters and understand that that's the Latin language that the popes used for that entire period, and you 
omit the letters in vicarious filii Dei that have no numeric value in the Roman numeral system that the Romans invented along with that Latin language, the leftover letters add up to the value of 666. Oh, now that's, I hadn't heard that before. Yes, it's, it's explained in chapter 13 of Christ Strike. At the end, there's a whole chart there. Vicarious Filii Dei. Take the letters that have a Roman numeral value, because not the whole alphabet was only, was used in the Roman numeral system, only certain letters. Take the letters that have a value in the Roman numeral system, without any trickery, they add up to 666. Very interesting. The reformers, the reformers, early reformers understood this. Early reformers identified the Pope as the Antichrist and the Beast of the Revelation. That's 600 years old. They weren't right about everything, but they were right about a lot of things. They identified the Pope as the Antichrist. There's um, handbills extant from Germany, from, from Holland, that identify the Pope as the Antichrist from the 1500s. Well, and as we can see today now, the who's a bigger cheerleader for the uh, invasion of Europe than the Pope? Right. Uh, I mean, the Pope is basically, uh, I mean, he's not the only Antichrist, but he is the second beast of Revelation chapter 13. His temporal power is ended, but the office is still alive, and its nature has not changed. It's even gotten more evil. So so that's a general overview of the Revelation. I can't give all the details here. There's thousands of uh, of details that are outlined in, in Christreich. I mean, it's the title of my book, Christreich. A lot of people look at Christreich and they say, oh, that's Hitler. He's a Hitler lover. And that's just crazy. Reich means empire in, in, in or kingdom in German. So so Christreich means kingdom of Christ. That's all it means. That the um, the text to the entire book is it is online for free. I, I I sell it. I like to sell books, but we all do. the The text is all online for free at Christreich.org. So so I'm not really looking to hawk anything or make money off what I claim to know. Well, you know, it does. It doesn't hurt to get a little support every now and again. Um, I mean, you put in thousands of hours and, uh, and you know, a little love uh, from the people out there that can purchase a book. You know, certainly does not help uh, hurt. Well, well, right. That's absolutely true. But it, if I believe to have the truth, and, and it's the truth of God, I better give it away. That's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it does say in there not to sell the truth. You know, right. and uh, you know, hardcover books. There's a cost there to produce them. You know, the putting stuff on a web page is is very low cost. Um, but to produce a hardcover book, you know, there are printing charges and stuff like that. Absolutely. So, so that's like a, a that's a very oversimplified and brief overview of those chapters of the Revelation, up until. Revelation chapter um, chapter 15, these, and, and I skipped a couple of chapters, like 7, 
these um these plagues, these seven last plagues, these that these bowls of wrath of the seven last plagues, and and the ark of the testimony. The ark of the testimony is the scripture itself. And and we've had this for all this time. What was in the ark of, of the covenant in in the desert exodus but a copy of the law? The the ark of the testimony is scripture. It's not on earth anymore, it's pictured as being opened in heaven, the seats of of government. And and it was during the Protestant Reformation. That there's a lot that could be said, the details are, are in my writing, but the Ark of the Testimony was opened in heaven when the European world, for the most part, and especially Northern Europe, accepted the 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 testimony of scripture in the bibles being posited by the reformers now the jews were right there to try to kill that baby there's no doubt and and to try to take it over for their own purposes and that took them a couple of hundred years to do and they did it and that's why where we are where we are today however if we didn't have a reformation and if we didn't have the ability to open these Bibles and examine ancient history, we would have all been enslaved to the tyranny of the popes from the time of the, the De Medici's and the Borgias. The De Medici's and the Borgias, I'm, I am sure about the Borgias, but I'm not 100% sure about the De Medici's, the De Medici's it's sometimes pronounced, but... The Borges were definitely crypto-Jews. And if the De Medici's were not crypto-Jews, then they missed an awfully good opportunity. They should have been. They were evil, wicked bastards who had, who had basically bought their way into the nobility, into the papacy. They did not belong there. They were infiltrators and usurpers. They started out as usurers and sorcerers. And... What, what, the Dame, the De Medici's tried to ban the scriptures in, in the Fifth Lateran Council at the time of Martin Luther. At the very time of Martin Luther, they tried to ban the scriptures, prevent anybody from making copies of the scriptures, from using the printing presses, from printing books that they did not approve of. It would have been over for the freedom of thought in Christendom if there was not a Reformation. And we may have never have seen the Bible again. That's the opening of the little book. On the other hand, the Jews used that liberty for themselves to eventually subvert our society. So we jumped from the fire pan into the fire. There's no doubt. Yeah, and even though the Bible was printed, they made a big, there was a big push to, you know, corrupt the teachings and the interpretations of it. Oh, right. There there were Jews that, this goes back even further, Nicholas of Lyra, Paul of Burgos, were Jews that even Martin Luther quoted. They were so-called converso-Jews who wrote Bible commentaries. The most popular Bible commentaries in medieval Europe were were written by these Jews. 
So they were poisoning the well as soon as the Reformation started to roll. And they've, they've done a good job of poisoning the well for uh, hundreds of years. Yes, they have. Once we eliminate Jewish thought, and, and I properly identify the Jews and their origins in history and scripture, and, and it could be done right from the pages of the New Testament and, and the prophet Ezekiel and, and Flavius Josephus, one, the history of Flavius Josephus, once the Jews are properly identified as the enemies of God that they were in the Old Testament, then a lot of history and scripture begins to make perfect sense. Yeah, it's it's been a, a long road for me to to make heads or tails of this, but you know, you know, the, the more you homework you do, the the clearer the picture becomes. And I was just kind of going through my head today, like what concepts um, or philosophies maybe are actually Jewish in origin, and just a few off the top of my head, I was thinking about. Um, you know, like we were discussing the other day, I don't think this one made it on the air, but you know, the Big Bang theory. Um, and uh, atheism is Jewish, agnosticism is Jewish, um, Islam is Jewish, Bolshevism, by the way, Bolshevism, uh, communism. You know, there's there's quite a few of these that um, aren't taught to people or sold as as being Jewish per se, but in fact they are. That this Islam, I, I, I'd like to talk about Islam for a quick minute. That the um, it, it's Islam that's actually being prophesied in the little horn of Daniel chapter eight, where the little horn of Daniel chapter seven is a prophecy of the time of Justinian and the institution of the office of the papacy which Justinian began and and there are clear statements in by Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 7 which prove that because they were fulfilled in history beyond all doubt just like there are clear statements in Daniel chapter 8 which show that we have to identify that little horn in Daniel chapter 8 with Mohammed and, and the beginning of Islam. When the Byzantines, what, when the, um, I'm sorry, what, when Constantine, in, in the beginnings of the Eastern, right, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, when Constantine accepted Christianity, a few emperors after him who were Christians, Theodosius I, Theodosius II, Justinian himself, began to make laws that basically, once Rome was a Christian empire, basically ostracized the Jews from society. And Jews had to either live in very controlled circumstances within the empire, circumstances that they could not bear. Usury was forbidden. Jews were forbidden from trying to convert Christians. Jews were forbidden from owning Christian slaves. Jews were forbidden from holding office and, and many other things. So many Jews chose to leave. And a lot of the Jews that left went to Khazaria, where we have the beginnings of the Khazar Jewish trading empire. A lot of Jews went to, uh, and the Turkish invasions, which resulted from that. A lot of Jews went to Arabia. 
and Algeria. And from Algeria, they eventually um, rallied the Arab Muslims and the Moors to invade Spain. In, as retribution because the Goths of Spain had adopted Christianity. The, um, the Jews in Arabia were actually quite numerous and were mixing with the Arabs. The word Arab simply means mixed. Arab is a Hebrew word which, referring to people, means mixed. It doesn't mean anything else but mixed. And the Jews were further mixing with these Arabs. And it could be established. And it's mentioned by Gibbon in his 18th century rise and fall of the Roman Empire. It's mentioned by Alzog in his rather voluminous book of the history of, of the Catholic Church, which was written in the 19th century, that Muhammad has Jewish blood. And not only did he have Jewish blood, but he used Jewish scribes, because Muhammad himself was illiterate. He was basically an illiterate Jewish pedophile. That's exactly what Muhammad was. And Islam, as soon as it was created, militarized these race-mixed Arabs in the south of the Arabian Peninsula, it militarized them into conquering Christian territories and forcibly raping Christian women and converting Christians to Islam under compulsion of force. Now, at that time, most of the Mediterranean world was still white. The Syrians, the people of Palestine, were the descendants of, for the most part, Roman and Greek settlers, or Syrians themselves, who were originally a white people. And Islam forcibly converted, by the sword, in a rather rapid fashion, all of the peoples of, of, of the Middle East and up into the Persian Empire, up into Persia, and all the way to the Caucasus Mountains, and across Africa, the, the nations of the Moors and, and, and the, um, the, the peoples of the Roman Empire and the Vandals and things like that who dwelt <laughs> in Africa were forcibly converted to Islam. And it wasn't long before the Jews encouraged the Muslims to invade Spain. And the Jews did that. The Jews had worked in harmony with these radical Muslims, these Arabs, and directed them into all the places that they were very quickly able to conquer. Because the Jews were using Islam as a wedge to destroy the Byzantine Empire that had expelled the Jews, or at least ostracized them so that they had to leave. A lot of people think the Muslims <laughs> just up on their own decided to invade Europe. And that's all just plain bullshit. It was all done with Jewish instigation, Jewish beckoning. Islamic Spain was formed at the whim of the Jews. 
they wanted to get even with the Goths and destroy the Goths because the Goths had converted to Christianity and taken the same policies against the Jews that the Byzantine emperors had. The Jews loved it when Europe was pagan. The Jews got along swell with pagan Europeans. Rome was a center of usury. The, the, um, the uprising of Boudicca in England was necessary because of Seneca's usurious ways and, and the fact that Boudicca's husband was a weak king that borrowed money from the Romans. From Seneca. That's how the, that, that's how the Iceni uprising really began. Athens was also a center of usury and, and the Jews thrived in Greece. These Edomite merchant Jews, not the people of the Old Testament, not the legitimate people of the Old Testament, who eschewed usury. Yeah, supposedly Islam bans usury as well. Islam, it, Islam does prohibit usury. That is true. That's one of its that that's one of its breaks from Judaism. But that's not really a break from Judaism because. Jews who claim the Old Testament is their own also see that it bans usury, but they've never practiced that. They've never practiced that ban on usury. Yeah, and we're usury may be the biggest crime uh, in the history of the world. I mean, it's right up there because from that, that really makes all the other ones possible. It's really the basis of of all the other treachery that that takes place. That there are places where usury is permissible, but only under on, only under particular circumstances. If, if an alien comes into your country, you should not loan him money at 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 um without usury so that he can't take your money and take advantage of you and in that case even the bible permits usury but usury is is um anathema otherwise yeah in wide practice and that would only be to discourage people from we're not supposed to live with with other with aliens anyway so that would never come up if you know, we weren't swamped with uh, all these uh, foreign people. Well, well, there should be no doubt, and and it's that there are all sorts of records. What when the um, when this when the Jews were ejected from Spain, they went right to Turkey. They went right into their Muslim countries in Turkey and thrived there. The Ladino Jews and. They encouraged the Turks to more fervently make war make in their wars against Europe, and that's that that's a that's a matter of recorded history in the 14th and 15th and and 16th centuries when they were driven out of Spain and Portugal. A lot of them went to South America with the conquistadors. A lot of those um, original settlers of South America were actually Jews and Converso Jews and um, the Caribbean islands as well. So a lot of these so-called Spaniards from South America and Cuba and Puerto Rico are really 
converso Jews or Jews, crypto Jews that had snuck over there to get out of Spain and Portugal, a lot of them went to Turkey. Yet, you know, the Muslims were making war on, on the empire, on, on the, um, on Vienna, all the way through the 16th century. They were making war against the Poles and the Lithuanians all the way through the 16th century. They had Vienna, I'm sorry, Venice. They, they had made war at sea in the Mediterranean against the um, Republic of Venice for several hundred years. They had Vienna under siege, I think as late as the 1780s, the, the, the last siege of Vienna. They besieged it a couple of times, trying to take Austria. Yeah, whenever they're I'm whenever sorry, they're unleashed, the yeah, that's what you get. You get war and then uh, usury, and they they try to fund both sides of the conflict. I'm sorry, it was the 1680s, 1683. 1680s. The Ottoman Empire had Vienna under siege. That's pretty recent. That's only a couple hundred years ago. That's only 330 years ago, 340 years ago. That the 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 Ottoman Turkish Muslims had Vienna under siege, and we have such a short memory of history, and this oh. current invasion of Muslims is also engineered by the Jews. It's the same Jews that are behind it that brought the Jews that that brought the Moors in into Spain, sixteen hundred years ago, fourteen hundred years ago. And and if it weren't for Charles Martel, they'd have taken France too. See now, instead of calling it a uh, Muslim invasion, it's called a migrant crisis. But because Christians are, are stupid and and have fallen for this this liberty, equality, and fraternity that these Jewish concepts, which were instituted and and pushed into the public vernacular and crammed down our throats ever since the French Revolution and none of these ideals that came out of the French Revolution are Christian. They're all Jewish ideals. They were all engineered so that Jews could force their way into the kingdom of heaven and destroy white society. Well, that's been a theme of, of uh, the Jews since, you know, for thousands of years is the destruction of our society and our people. Satan went into the pit. Revelation chapter 20 is another umbrella or overview prophecy. And there is a line in there that has confused Christians for generations about the resurrection. Where it says in Revelation chapter 20 verse 5, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And that line should not be in there. That line is not in any of the oldest surviving manuscripts of the Revelation. It appears in the Codex Alexandrinus in the 5th century AD. But it's not in many of the old manuscripts, and it's not in either all of the manuscripts of the majority text or in the Codex Sinaiticus, which is from the 4th century. All it should say in Revelation 20, verse 5 is, this is the first restoration, where 
it says that Christians that didn't worship idols, basically, ruled with Christ for a thousand years. It should say in verse 5, this is the first restoration. Meaning that it was a prelude, a microcosm, a, 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 a pre-game show for the kingdom of God. And for a thousand years in Europe, Christians did live virtually, not totally, but virtually free of Jews. The yeah, see, of yeah. When I first when I first started looking at this stuff, I I thought, well, when have we ever had a thousand year break from uh, the Jew? And yeah, it wasn't total, but yeah, on, for the most part, you compare that thousand year break to what we have now, and yeah, you can definitely see a, a difference. Right, and and when you look at European culture, when you imagine, yeah, you know what they call the Dark Ages is only dark to the Jews. They weren't the Dark Ages at all. They were rather pretty enlightened. People lived without money. They lived without debt. They, that they helped one another. Man, in, in the feudal period, I'm not saying the feudal period was perfect. There was a lot of petty rivalry between kings and, and a lot of war because of the petty rivalry. It wasn't perfect, but it was relatively peaceful. When you look at the history of the last 300 years... The feudal period, in, in the feudal period, man derived his value from what he could do for his community. Under Jewish capitalism, man derives his value under how many toys he has, from how many toys he has in his garage, or, or from how big his bank book is, or from how expensive his sports car is. And we don't care about our community. What we would no, step on our neighbor to to make our bank book bigger or to add another toy to the collection in the garage. Yeah, to to the Jew, the Dark Age means a functional, healthy white society. Right. That's absolutely. Yeah. They weren't Dark Ages by any means. That there, there was um that there were all kinds of arts and writing and literature that we just don't know much about, but they weren't the Dark Ages. Well, let's look at the architecture of, of Europe that survived. I mean, I mean, it's amazing some of the buildings you see in Europe, like well, some well, of the right. castles, some of the churches. Um, that there were you know, beautiful castles in Germany a thousand years old, right? I mean, you compare that to anything you see in Africa, even today. You know, especially you know, sub-Saharan Africa. It, 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 it's it's amazing. So, how can that really truly be a dark age? Well, what it means is that they're you know, the 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 Jewish you know evil was contained, you know, at least somewhat. Well, well, Satan began to go into the pit with Constantinus too, and the, the I think it was the son or grandson of Constantine of Constantine. The, the um, Theodosius one, Theodosius two, they began to pass laws when once they adopted Christianity. They began to pass laws that ostracized the Jew from society. Charlemagne, Charlemagne was a great man, but he was not our friend. He permitted the Jews into Europe, but they were property of the kings. The Jews were property, chattel property of the kings. They could only be in Europe, at the, in any European nation, at the whim 
of the kings, or, or the duke, or, or whoever, whatever nobleman ruled a particular land. They were used for purposes of tax collection and, and to loan money to the kings and the nobles, because the regular people, of course, were never allowed to borrow money and had no way to pay it back if they did. That's why England invented the mortgage, which actually comes from Jewish commercial law. The, the, um, the Jews were chattel property of the kings in Europe from the time of Charlemagne until their emancipation. They were allowed to function in particular roles at the whim of the nobility, but they could not hold public office. They could not own Christian slaves. They could not that they weren't supposed to loan money to Christians at usury, but it, they did. That's how they made their money. Christians weren't supposed to borrow money at usury, but the noble class did. The um, that there were a lot of restrictions on the Jews. They they were forced to live in ghettos. They were forced to identify themselves as Jews, and I am of the sincere belief that a lot of our Germanic folklore was designed to warn our children against Jews. Now, there's a lot of of, of direct talk that that um, warns children of Jews in the poetry of Chaucer, for instance, for example. But if you look at Grimm's fairy tales, Rumpelstiltskin is an elf. He's an impish man who spins gold out of straw. And in return for spinning gold out of straw, he demands a Christian baby. Rumpelstiltskin's a story about a Jew. There is no yeah, doubt. When, when I was a kid, it was never presented like that. But yeah, when you look at it through this lens, it's pretty obvious. Hansel and Gretel and the wicked witch that, that, that lived in the forest that baked children into cookies... That, that, how about the stories about the the dwarf or the ogre under the bridge that would come out and want demand money for you to cross the bridge? The ogre was a Jew. If you look at um, Jude Sus or, or any of the accounts of medieval Europe, which explain that when the nobility, when the noblemen had borrowed money from the Jew, very often the Jew gained the right to collect taxes for passage on the roads through that kingdom until the bill was paid. So the Jews became toll collectors on the roads of medieval Europe, and in exchange for the money that they had loaned to the duke or to the king, or to the count, so that this, a lot of these stories in our folklore are warnings against the Jews. It, to me, I, I, you know, in more of a modern you know, storytelling, I, I've always pictured vampires as being Jews. Absolutely. And, and, and Vlad the Impaler has gotten a really bad rap. He was a really good man. But Count Dracula and, and the vampire stories are definitely about Jews. Sucking yeah, like, the blood out of society. Yeah, a few years ago there used to be a show on HBO called True Blood. And this is about the time I was waking up, you know, a couple of years ago. And I would always 
whenever I, there, there was a character on TV that was a vampire, I always just uh, switched that with Jew. And then in the zombie movies now, I always, to me, the, the zombie apocalypse is these sub-Saharan Africans that are invading the, the Europe and uh, whatnot. I, I, don't, I don't understand why people don't see it. That they can live these, all of our men, our young boys, and our young men are gamers today. And they live in this fantasy land and of these games. And, and the games are, are kind of poking fun at the people playing them. Because the zombies are all around them, and they can't recognize them. No, they're stuck in their uh, world, and uh, they don't see what's going on around them. Which is a little depressing. That's kind of why we're in the boat we're in. Um, but, okay, so we, we kind of covered the uh, the Jew going into the pit. Um the Jew going into the pit was a process between the time of, yep. uh, of Theodosius one, Theodosius two, to the time of Charlemagne, where the Jew became the property of the nobility, and and, and could only function at the whims of the kings, and, and was definitely in a pit as far as he couldn't go out and permeate society and and interact with Christians freely. There's a lot he couldn't do. And if you look at, uh, there are, there are, on some of my websites, I, I got several, that there are depictions of Jews in medieval England where they were actually drawn as devils. There's Jews on a tax roll from the 13th century, from, from Saxon England, where they were drawn, I'm sorry, from the 10th century, I believe, or 11th, that this is from Anglo-Saxon England, from before the Norman invasion, and, and they were actually drawn as devils. There are pictures of Jews in, in medieval English manuscripts that testified in court, they were drawn as devils. Christians knew these things about Jews. So we had a 400-year period of the Jew going into the pit. Coming out of the pit was also a, a three-, four-hundred-year period. And that process began with, with the Enlightenment in, in Italy in the 14th century. And, and it, um, it ended with the Renaissance, I'm sorry. And, and it ended with Napoleon at the emancipation of the Jews, which basically means that they were equal citizens with Europeans. Because until the time of Napoleon, the Jew couldn't hold public office, the Jew couldn't vote, the Jew couldn't take part in the political process, the, the Jew couldn't own <clears throat> property in, in many places. He had to... Um, he, he, he had to have an arrangement with the king and, and live on king's estates and, and, and property that the kings owned within the nation. It, it, it was, there were many restrictions against the Jews that basically ostracized them from society. It excluded them from taking part in society as citizens, even though they were there. And in, in some ways, they had privileges that citizens did not have, but they were still bound. In, in the sense that they had no freedom to move around Christian people and interact with them and, and pervert and corrupt them. 
And, and yeah, there was there was no Bank of England or Federal Reserve or ADL or SPLC or APAC. Right. They couldn't control oh. the people. That they couldn't corrupt villages and towns with their smut, their porn, and, and all the things that they do now that they just couldn't do back then. That they medieval Europe that they were at the that they were everywhere they were was at the whim of the local rulers. And they could be run out. They were run out of everywhere. They were run out of everywhere several times. They were run out of most places. Yeah, there's a YouTube video. Uh, it has a, it's like two, three minutes long. It just shows all the places the Jews have been kicked out of. The idea of converting the Jews to Christianity, that idea was kicked around and, and throughout the, 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 um, the first thousand years of Christianity, we had popes that thought it was a good idea to forcibly convert the Jews, but we had more popes that thought it was a bad idea. And there were Talmud burnings. There were Talmud burnings in France in the 1300s. There were Talmud burnings in Italy several times. They, um, that there were Christian sects like the Dominicans who thought that they should actively seek to convert Jews to Christianity. In Spain, they forcibly converted thousands of Jews to Christianity in the 1300s. And sadly, what often happened was because people were under the mistaken impression that the Jews had some kind of special knowledge about Scripture because they understood Hebrew, the, the Hebrew language. They didn't understand it well, but they understood it. When a Jew became converted to Christianity, he was put on a pedestal. He was given a position in the church. A lot of converted Jewish rabbis almost immediately became Catholic bishops simply because they were Jews and, and they were seen as special people because they had this identity that really never belonged to them. And, and that's how gullible white Christians are and still are to this day. So certain converso Jews were able to write Bible commentaries and do things that had a profound effect on Christian doctrine. And, and that was not very good for our people. Not at all, because a lot of our false doctrines, which we have today, and especially our false opinions concerning the nature of these Jews and their identity, stems from those converso Jews who wrote Bible commentaries and, and, and studies and were given positions in the Catholic Church that they really should have never been given that they should have never had. So that the early church, in a lot of ways, and, and Christian theologians of the medieval period were polluted with Jewish thought and, and thinking from as early as the 12th and 13th centuries, when this process began to happen. Jews were behind a lot of the Reformation, and, and other things were going on at the same time. There was a big push 
in the 15th and 16th centuries to burn the books of the Jews, Martin Luther not only advised burning all their books, but taking all their property and making them live out in the open fields until they worked for a living. That was what Martin Luther, that was his solution in on the Jews and their lies, that the Jews would be stripped of everything they had, stripped of their identity, stripped of everything, and forced to live like animals until they decided to actually do some work, some honest work. And Bobby Bobby Fischer talked about that, too, in his YouTube clip. The, the big problem with, with Hitler was that they, when sending him to camps was they were actually made to work. Right, Absolutely. That's why they hate them. It's said on the camp in German. It says, you know, on the on the door there. It says, you know, work makes you free. Yes. The the um the Jews were always able to influence or corrupt enough Christian noblemen in, in order to maintain their position. So even though Martin <clears throat> Luther, in the closing decades of his life, caught on to the treachery of the Jews and wrote the, these um stirring diatribes against the Jews, the Lutheran Church never adopted Martin Luther's advice. It never accepted his warnings. Because there was enough infiltrators in there to to, to keep it from... Enough infiltrators, get... enough money, enough influence. You had men like Johann Reuschlin, who was promoting actively, and he was a respected academic throughout Europe who was actively promoting the Talmud and the Kabbalah, and you had John Dee, who I just did a segment on on, on my own podcasts, who was actively promoting the Kabbalah, so that when, when alchemy and science were, were born in Europe, and scientific inquiry was born in Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries, and men had the freedom to conduct scientific inquiry because they were no longer under the tyranny of the popes. This promotion of the Kabbalah in Europe gave the Jewish rabbis an authority that they never deserved over scientific inquiry because they were pushing the Kabbalah as this book of great secrets and wisdom and knowledge and it was written in Hebrew so you needed you to figure it out and the rabbis are right there they're the experts yeah you know all this kind of stems yeah like what we were talking about was the uh, the French Revolution and uh, I was kind of I was digging around on I, I found an article uh, I was just going to read a couple paragraphs here and and see what you think of this. Um, this is from myjewishlearning.com, an article by uh, Eli Barnavi. I'll just read a couple of paragraphs here. Um, the title of, it, of the article is called uh, Liberty, Equality, Fraternity. Was it good for the Jews? And uh, the, the first part is uh, France is our Palestine. Recognizing that Jews were equal to other citizens and working toward the legal abolition of disabilities and inequalities were, uh, were ideals that began to materialize in Western Europe only two centuries ago. The Declaration of Rights of Man and of the Citizen, the Manifesto of the French Revolution, inspired by the spirit of enlightenment, implied Jewish equality. The law passed uh, by the Constitu Constituent Assembly on September 27, 1791, uh, the first act of 
uh, full emancipation by a Christian state uh, was perceived by the Jews as a historic turn which heralded a future of happiness. France is our Palestine, its mountains are our Zion, and its rivers are Jordan. Let us drink the water of these sources. It is the water of liberty. And that was from a letter uh, to a name I cannot pronounce in uh, French uh, from 1791. Anyway, then the second paragraph here is, uh, Jews should be denied everything as a nation, but granted everything as individuals. After the French Revolution, emancipation became the central issue for Jews everywhere. But each community had to maintain its own struggle for emancipation. In most places, the legal decision was the crowning achievement of a lengthy process of economic and social integration. However, in some cases, as in France itself, emancipation preceded the reunification of traditional Jewish society. It was the liberal struggle for the universal application of natural rights that ensured civil equality of the Jews. If you examine the origin of the secret societies, it, especially Freemasonry, and, and I just did three segments on this, I quoted from at least four books written in the 18th and 19th centuries to prove that Freemasonry has Jewish origins. Not only does it have Jewish origins, it has Jewish ideals. And the Grand Orient Lodge of Freemasonry in France was the launching pad for the French Revolution. But Freemasonry, if you examine its roots and and what it claims to be, it claims to be a, a community of, of scientific inquiry, of um, freedom of, of the exchange of ideas and things like that. And all of that came from the proponents of the Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism under the guise of science, the alchemists and the sorcerers like John Dee and Johann Reuschlin of the 16th century and, and even the 15th century in, in, in Italy. The, the link between the Kabbalists and the Freemasons, I believe, is the Rosicrucians which started in Germany in, in the very early 17th century, 1600-something, 1610-something. And when the Kabbalah had made it to England with John Dee, and Freemasonry had, had come from Scotland, the Rosicrucians are, are the, the chain which links them together. And I'm not positive of the existence of Freemasonry before that, whether it really came from the trade guilds or not really isn't important. All of the ideals that it expresses are Jewish in nature. Freemasonry is Zionist. It talks about the, the return to Palestine, the rebuilding of Solomon's temple, and, and a, a new world order that would be instituted. It, it's basically expressing Christian Zionism or, or thinly masked Christian Zionism. It's really Jewish Zionism. Freemasonry is founded on, on on Jewish fables and Jewish ideals. And this liberty, equality, and fraternity, which 
I explain in Christreich, in, in discussing Revelation chapter 16, are the unclean frogs in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. The dragon in scripture is basically the satanic Jew, and out of the mouth of the beast, the government that the satanic Jewish international merchants have propped up, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. What's a false prophet? Somebody who claims to be speaking for God, but is really speaking against God, is really spreading evil ideas in the name of God, and that would be the papacy, as well as Islam or any other idea that's really ungodly, but claiming to speak for God. So, from the 1700s forward, from the age of liberty forward, all of our Western governments have embraced these same three ideas and have been founded on these same three ideas, liberty, equality, and fraternity. And they have been used against us to force us to take these other races and pull them into our societies and raise them up to our level. And that's not where they deserve to be, and it's not where they belong. It is not Christian to do that. It is actually anti-Christian to do that. Diversity and multiculturalism are Jewish ideals, and they are anti-Christian ideals. Yeah, the liberty, equality, fraternity business, that's right out of the protocols of Zion. Absolutely. There's, to a Christian, there's no liberty in, in, in accepting Christ. There is no such thing as liberty. The Apostle Peter said, they will promise you liberty while they themselves are the servants of corruption. And who does that describe better but the medieval Jew? Liberty is a lie. No man could be free because no man created himself. No man can own himself. We are all destined to be subject to a higher power. And if Christians don't subject themselves to God, they're going to be subject to the devil. You think you're going to get away with it? There's no way you're going to get away with it. See, that is such a huge point. Okay, we're created beings, right? We can't, you know, and I love the other point you make, we can't save ourselves either. Right. We don't choose God. God chose us. Absolutely. Once you understand those points, life starts to make more sense. These unclean frogs are three spirits, three unclean spirits, which have controlled our society for over 200 years now. These ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity, which have been used against us, undermined Christian civilization and caused it to be flooded with aliens. Yeah, that's where globalism comes back to bite you in the butt, this uh, global trade with, with other nations. Hey, we can outsource this, or we can import people to do jobs we don't like doing. Well, well, right. It's the Jew. The, the Jews' real endeavor is to 
homogenize the world, to put the world in a blender and homogenize it so that everything's the same and the wandering Jew can go anywhere, know what to expect, be treated the way he wants to be treated, and, and conduct all of his perversions and, and natural proclivities to be a sodomite wherever he goes. And, and he's free to do that. That's real liberty to the Jew. Real liberty to the Jew is being able to have your daughter anytime he wants. That's what they did in Bolshevik Russia. That's real liberty to the Jew is to liberate your daughters and your sons from you and liberate their panties from them. Yeah, here, here's a quote. Um, For us, there are not checks to the limit to limit the range of our activity. Our super government subsists in extra legal conditions which are described in the accepted terminology by the energetic and forcible word dictatorship. You know, that that's from Protocol Nine. And that's where that's where this liberal society leads. Because once the liberals in a liberal society gain control, they want to impose a dictatorship. They want to impose conditions under which they have no opposition. So these liberal progressive Democrats get in power, and they want to put all sorts of restrictions in place. Restrictions against weapons, restrictions against speech, so that they have full control and no more political opposition. To them, political opposition is hate. That's what true hate speech is. Is Hate speech is the defense of functional Christian white society. Standing Absolutely. up against you know, perverts in the bathroom, right. uh, gay marriage. At um, every turn. If people don't see that by now, they're never going to see it. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I you know, I come from a background of doing a lot of 9/11 and uh, JFK research, and you know, here's just another blurb from the protocols. Um, it is from us that the all-engulfing terror proceeds. We have in our service persons of all opinions, of all doctrines, uh, restorating uh, monarchists, demagogues, socialists, communists, and utopian dreamers of every kind. So, so we have what? Brother Nathaniel. <laughs> Brother, a, a Jew for Jesus, making a clown out of Christians. And, and, and we see Alex Jones. And, and the Jews can, are con using these individuals. Alex Jones, the Arabs run Hollywood. Really? That the world is being run by Nazis. Really? That would be heaven if it were, I wish it were true. Well, it's but this it's German death cult. It's certainly not true, right? It's ridiculous. It's absurd. There's and, a there's a website out there, and it's a couple of years old, but it talked about how nearly every guest and every sponsor of Alex Jones is Jewish. Right. It and goes right down the line. You know, reason. Steve Shank, his old uh, E Foods Direct. You know, uh, you know, and right on down the line, uh, he's. Almost all those sponsors are Jewish. And when you look up these guests, like, you know, okay, Max Kaiser, obviously a Wall Street Jew. Um, you know, it goes on and on. You know, Bob Chapman used to be on there all the time. Ashkenazi Jew. Um, till he died. And, uh, 
So you've got basically a, a Shabos Goy, and he's promoting libertarianism, which is a completely Jewish uh, economic system. Absolutely. Libertarian, libertarianism isn't only economic, it's social. And, and it, it's... That that's even more dangerous. The idea that the 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 sodomite can live next door to you peaceably because what he does in his house doesn't hurt you is libertarian, and and that's evil because libertarian libertarianism basically gives the devil the license to dwell peaceably in your community, but that doesn't change him from being a devil. Yeah, I saw a quote from Goebbels on that uh, last week where he talks about, uh, you know, where people even back in the 30s and 40s were talking about how homosexuals weren't hurting anybody doing their own thing. He says, well, actually you are. You're killing our nation. You're uh, destroying our birth rates. And, you know, our nation will, our race will become, uh, you know, virtually meaningless in 100 years and completely gone within 250 Right, absolutely, and and corrupting our children. I, I don't, yeah, you know, this idea that homosexuals can exist without corrupting children, it is a major cognitive disconnect. Well, and and what have we seen? You know, everything Goebbels and, and Hitler talked about back in the thirties, the nineteen thirties and forties, has come to pass. Um, lesbianism, anybody, lesbianism any, was being promoted very heavily in Weimar Germany. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, does anybody think Germany's in better shape now under Merkel than they were under Hitler? Germany was a wonderful nation under Adolf Hitler. I'd, I'd hate to say it. It, it. Germany was a virtual utopia compared to the rest of the Christian nations during the Depression. Hitler was Do we a, think, what yeah, was would, would, would Hitler man. put up with this migrant crisis? Hitler was the first great white leader to fight the bankers, and he's obviously the last. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't see another one coming down the pike. But most of the, um, but mo- some of your leaders, some of your, I'm sorry, some of your listeners are going to hate this, but that's just the way it is. If you actually go back and read Mein Kampf, well, which I also have online for free, if you read Mein Kampf and, and understand it within the context of today that basically Jewish supremacists rule the world and we are all enslaved to them through this usury money system. And read Mein Kampf, you'll understand what Hitler was fighting against and why he was demonized. So Hitler was defeated um the Jewish bankers completely conquered Europe and the United States. So, yeah, so when, when we leave the ruins of the French Revolution, you know, what do we see next? You know, the Russian Revolution, you know, which was not Russian by any stretch of the imagination, but Bolshevik Jews, as, as we had talked about earlier. There, and, there were two nations, I'm, I'm sorry, there were two nations in, in, in the end of 19th century Europe that were in the way of the Rothschilds. And both of those nations had, had um, shown antipathy to the Jews. And one of them was Holy Russia, Imperial Russia, Christian Russia. 
and the other one was Kaiser's Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm's Germany. And both of those nations had to be destroyed in order for the Rothschilds to rule the world, for the, for the English bankers to rule the world without opposition. And World War I was engineered to pull Germany into it, and the, the added benefit that they got was to be able to overthrow Russia during World War because Russia was brought into the war against Germany. So Germany was more than happy to let the Jews pass through Germany and route to Russia to overthrow it, and Jacob Schiff was more than happy to finance them. Yeah, and what, what like you know, and we mentioned earlier, let's you know, back in uh, turn of the century, you know, nineteen hundred, uh, United States, uh, you know, soon after that, you had the uh, the meeting out at Jekyll Island, and then the the creation of the Federal Reserve. So then, uh, Jews completely took over our our money supply, and at that time, you know, right around nineteen hundred, uh, white people were just a a hair more than 30% of the world's population. And then once that Federal Reserve went into effect, then what was the, what was the immediate consequence of the creation of the Federal Reserve? Well, well it was World War I. Right. World War I, woman's emancipation, women's lib, so that women could vote, which was a major mistake. And then World War II, right on the heels of that, and look, so what happened World War II? So we decimated Europe, uh, gutted Germany, uh, firebombed Dresden. Um, you know, millions of white people were, were killed. And then you can start seeing, you look at the at 1950, you know, in the United States, in the, in the 1950s, everything was portrayed as, uh, you know, June and Ward Cleaver. Um, everything was, uh, hunky dory, but boy, you can, you can just see the, the European percentage of the world population just drop like a rock after 1950. And by the time 2000 hit, we're well under 20%. Well, there were probably 100 million to 120 million white Christians destroyed in the Bolshevik Revolution, the, the resulting um, famines that were perpetrated in Russia and in the Ukraine by the Soviets, and then World War One and World War Two, that killed a hundred and a hundred to one hundred and twenty million white Christians. Those yeah, wars, r- yeah, right, right there, yeah. So the Holodomor, the, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution, World War One and World War Jew, as I call it, um, these have been devastating uh, to our people. So. Um, right now we're we're at about eight percent, eight or nine percent of the world population, and you know we're we're falling fast. You know, we're getting flooded now. What's the, the the white people that are left now? See, if there was if we were still over thirty percent of the world's population, there's no way that this this migrant invasion would happen. But, well, well, it's it, it's all going on for the glory of God. I mean, there is a bright side of the coin. Revelation seventeen seventeen, which is actually what happened up until and including nineteen thirteen. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill His will and to agree and give their kingdom under the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. That now this is a 
the, the final punishments for our apostasy as a people. But there's a bright side to this coin, that this is a period of punishment that God is allowing his enemies to conduct against us so that we would realize that only he can be our king, that only he can be our sovereign. That's why I said that when Christians understand that they have to be subject to somebody, they better want to be subject to Christ because that's the only way out of this mess. Yeah, and this mess, in in the Bible, it talks about uh, uh, Jeremiah 30. Uh, seven, chapter 30, verse 7, uh, says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So, yeah, we're taking our lumps now, but we will survive. That is where we are. And yes, we will survive. In in fact, that that's Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Revelation chapter 19 it is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's the destruction of all of the enemies of Christ. Revelation chapter 18 has to come first, though. That's the fall of mystery Babylon. Once you understand, you know, because of our our ignorance of history, we don't understand scripture. Mystery Babylon is descriptive of the world system which we live in, which actually every facet of it originated in ancient Babylon and has been perpetuated through time by the international Jew, who is really the the, the same entity that was causing our race trouble all the way back at the Tower of Babel and... and, and the, the original establishment of the city of Babylon, which was built as a Canaanite trading city about 1900 BC. It was an Amalekite trading city. It was a hub for merchandise in 1900 BC. Yeah, there's really nothing new under the sun. Um, sure, our technology's improved, but human nature has stayed basically the same. In the last few thousand years, so well, well right, same. human nature, and and right, it's exactly the same as it was five thousand years ago. Except now we've got SUVs and sports cars and boats and smartphones and desktop computers. There were a few times in the past we were probably on our way to creating that those things. Uh, I mean, the ancient Phoenicians who were white. And, and some of our ancestors and the ancient Greeks, they had quite a few advanced technologies. Even though they hadn't harnessed electricity, they understood mechanics very, very well and, and made gears and, and little machines that could, um, work on gears. And, and they had, in, in fact, Diodorus Siculus describes the creation of a lens in the 3rd century B.C., they could set fire to ships in the harbor. So they had the concept of a laser using harnessing the power of the sun. And this is right in the Diodorus Siculus Library of History. And it's pretty surreal, but it's there. And he wrote about it in the 1st century B.C. So there are times when we've 
we verged on the technology that we have today, we verged onto that path, and and war and destruction have pulled us off it. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think. Just think if we had no war all these thousands of years, where where we would actually be as a people. You know, no war, no usury, no no, no Jews, no Jews. But we need the Holocaust that we owe them. We do owe them a Holocaust. That they've been crying about it for, um, for for centuries and centuries. They understand their final fate. It, it's got to be a, an underlying spiritual thing. They do understand their final fate, and they've been whining about it, but it's never happened. No, so far it hasn't. No, but they know. I I think the Jews that really run the thing, they know that there will be none left to the house of Esau. When Satan comes out of the pit, the Revelation says he has but a short time. Now, that short time in in the mind of God is a couple of hundred years, maybe longer, but it's a short time. His days are numbered. Yeah, and it's what we're going to explore here in the the next show, probably, uh, how close to the end uh, we we probably are. Um, And that's not to say it's going to happen next week, but... You know, there's a lot of people think that there's still this whole thousand-year uh, kingdom between now and the end, and well, that's that's obviously not true. That's why at the beginning I, I had mentioned that Revelation chapter 20 verse 5, and how that one line, which confuses Christians because it can't happen until after the resurrection, which confuses Christians about the application of that prophecy. It has to be understood that that line is not in the original manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts. It's not there. It does not belong. It's an interpolation. Yeah, and it's it's, it's it really has thrown people off the track. And um, so we've we've seen you know the thousand years has, has expired, and Satan has been loose from the pit. Yes. And what we're living in, in now is the time of Jacob's trouble. Is the um, you know the satanic Jew has has uh, dominated the planet, uh, caused all these wars, all the famine, all the starvation. Um, well, we've handed our kingdom over to the beast, and, and that's the judgment of God. Yeah, I, I guess I would liken it to. I, I guess we're we're like in a bad marriage right now. <laughs> right, our that that's the whore joined to the beast. It, in Revelation chapters 17 and 18, the children of Israel collectively are the bride or the wife of God. And that's how they're described ever since the Exodus. And for their sin, God had to divorce them, put them away. When they were put away, when they went into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, most of them went up through the Caucasus Mountains. Now, there were already a lot of peoples in Europe who had migrated from Palestine and Mesopotamia through Anatolia many centuries before this, right? And a lot of those people are Israelites, and a lot of them come from other branches of the white race. But after the Assyrian captivity of Israel, when all of Israel was taken and settled in the cities of the Medes, they didn't stay there. They started going one tribe at a time up through the Caucasus Mountains, around the Black Sea, and into Europe. But they weren't called Israelites anymore. The word for 
the Israelites in Assyrian were the bit Cymri, or the Cymri, and the Greeks had Hellenized Cymri after the king Amri of Israel. They Hellenized that into Kimeroi, and the Romans called them Kimerians. And the Greeks called them that because when the Greeks first met these Cymri, Assyrian Assyria was the empire in the east, and Akkadian, the language of the Assyrians, was the lingua franca of trade and diplomacy. Just like English today is the lingua franca of trade and diplomacy. And in the Assyrian period, it was Akkadian. So these people were called Cymri. They were the ancestors of the modern Germans. They were the first wave. The second wave the Greeks called Sake, and they called them Sake, or Sakins, or Saxons, because by the time this second wave of the descendants of these Israelites came into Europe, Persia was the empire, and Aramean was the lingua franca. So the Greeks learned the Aramaic word for them, which was used by the Persians, which was Sake. So they called the first wave Kimeroi and the second wave Sake or Sakins and eventually Scythians because of the difference in the lingua franca in Mesopotamia over the hundred year period. So these people are equated in inscriptions in, Meso- in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamian inscriptions, the Behistun Rock, and other Persian inscriptions, which were made in three languages, Farsi, Akkadian, and Aramaic, identify the Kimroi, or, or the Kimroi, or the Qumri of the Assyrians, who are the children of the Israelites, which were taken into Assyrian captivity in older Assyrian inscriptions with the Sake. They're the same people. This is right in Mesopotamian inscriptions. I could open up a book and show them to you right now if you were next to me. The the book is Ancient Near Eastern Texts Related to the Old Testament. It was published by um, Princeton University in 1969. And it's available online as a PDF, even at my own website, I think. Well, yeah, that's that's uh, that's great. People can go and uh, and and track that down. Um, so, so, so uh, these people, are the ancestors of the Germans, and, and a lot of the other people of Europe had already come from the Israelites or from other related peoples in the Levant and Mesopotamia, and and that's the origin of our race. And I don't really remember how we got into this topic that that I felt I had to review it that quickly. But we were prophesied to suffer 2,500 years, seven times. Seven biblical times is 2,520 years of punishment under tyrants because we were disobedient to our God. Because we wanted, we demanded earthly kings. So we were subject to this 2520 year period, which ended with the end of the temporal power to papacy around 1790 AD in the days of Napoleon. 
But that's when the time of Jacob's trouble, when we decided that we could rule ourselves and do better without God or the tyrants. What did the French Revolution do? It got rid of God. It got rid of the nobility. It got rid of the king. It emancipated the Jews. And it got rid of God. Hey, what a enlightening, you know, wonderful period of human history, huh? Right. And, they, they, and, they, the, the official religion of France after the French Revolution was basically atheism. It was humanism. It was the religion of man. All this liberty, equality, fraternity has just about completely killed us. And that started the time of Jacob's trouble. It's trouble, yeah. So the time of Jacob's trouble is almost really the... the the white race exiting the stage of uh, humanity. Um, and, you know, it says in, in Matthew uh, chapter 24, um, for then shall be great tribulation, such as not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor shall ever be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Right, and that has to apply to it. Matthew 24, though, is a very confusing chapter. And I'll explain why real quickly. Some of Matthew chapter 24 only has to do with the destruction of the temple. Some of Matthew chapter 24 has to do with the quote-unquote time of the end and the return of the Christ. But we're not told which part explicitly, which part, answers which of the three questions that the apostles had asked Christ. They asked him three questions, and they assumed, they made the wrong assumption, they assumed that the answer would be the same for all three questions, because all these things would happen at the same time. They were wrong. All these things weren't supposed to happen at the same time. Christ said, coming out of the of, upon the Mount of Olives, and they looked at him and and pointed out to him how beautiful the temple at Jerusalem was. It, it was made of white stones that were cut out of granite, these white granite stones that were 25 cubits long. That's like 37 and a half feet or something like that, 25 cubits. And, and they were 12 feet wide, these beautiful, huge stones that made this temple. And the apostles... When he said that not one stone is going to be left upon another, that that day was coming, which happened in 70 AD, they asked him three questions, and now it's only, it's only like 33 AD, 32 AD, and they said, tell us, when shall these things be? And then they asked him two more questions, and what is the sign of your coming, and of the consummation, or the end of the age? or the world, if you will. So they asked him three questions, and he goes off on one long diatribe that answers all three questions. So which part of his diatribe answers which question, right? So that's why Matthew 24 can be confusing if you really haven't sat down and studied the text. I guess my interpretation of that is is that the white race won't be wiped out completely. Um, no, absolutely not. But we have had a time of trouble. Oh, there's no <laughs> there is no question wars. about that. Just the Civil War alone killed half a million white men fighting over niggers. 
liberty, equality, and fraternity. There you have it. That's the result. You know, I guess I would just make a simple point here as well about biology. Okay, a white person mating with a non-white person, the result of that is a non-white person. Right, that's the death of the spirit. Just, yeah, just on that basis alone, I mean, segregation equals preservation of the white race. Even if you believe that God created the Negro, which I don't. I, I believe that the Negro is a corruption of God's original creation. I have reasons for believing that, but that's way beyond the scope of this, of, of this discussion. Even if you believe that God created the Negro and the Chinaman and the, the Indian or whatever, they are distinctly different kinds. They have distinctly different spirits, different abilities. They create and, and the evidence of this is right in front of our faces, they create distinctly different environments, cultures, and civilizations. The laws of God in the Bible are kind after kind. Everything after its kind. That's repeated 10 or 12 times in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Race mixing is called fornication in Scripture. In fact, that can be proven from Jude, verse 7, where he says, in, in, in the Greek language, I know it's a little obscure in the English of the King James, but he basically says that fornication is the pursuit of different flesh. That word strange in the King James Version is heteros. Heteros in Greek means different. Fornication, the pursuit of different flesh. Paul described an event in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which happened in the book of Numbers chapter 25, when the children of Israel went in unto the daughters of Moab. And Paul described that as fornication. It was a race-mixing event. The solution to that was in Numbers chapter 26, maybe the end of 25, where Gideon takes a spear and runs through a man who was coupled with a Moabite woman and kills them both. He's rewarded an eternal priesthood for that. Fornication or race mixing is contrary to the law of God. It's very clear in Scripture, once you see how the term is used and see what events it refers to, your Catholic priest, your Protestant pastor will not tell you these things. He probably doesn't even know it because he's been trained by the damn Jews that push liberty, equality, and fraternity on us and diversity and multiculturalism and every other foul spirit. In Revelation chapter 22, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2, Christ has some very strong words against Jezebel, who taught my servants to commit fornication. Therefore, I will kill her children with death. Why would he kill the children? Oh, be- because they were... Because they're products mixing. of the fornication. Yeah, yeah, the race mixing. Yeah. That's the only thing that explains why Jesus would kill the little children. Jesus hates... All these Judeo-Christians say Jesus loves, but they neglect the things that Jesus hates. Race mixing is destructive to God's creation. Adolf Hitler understood that 
any nation is cast out of the Garden of Eden once it sins against blood and race. He understood what Genesis chapter 3 and eating that fruit was really about. And the Jew, the serpent of the garden, has been teaching us to eat that fruit for these last 200 years with liberty, equality, and fraternity. Yeah, look at all the all the uh, parts of the Jewish agenda. Uh, uh, integration of the schools, you know, at bayonet point. Uh, right. Multiculturalism, diversity. You know, diversity is our strength. He's destroying the creation of God once again. Yeah, these are the modern. I mean, it sounds enlightened to be. Hey, I'm not a racist, or you know, I support diversity. Yeah. God's a racist. The proof of that is that race exists. Exactly, and well, and, and if, even if you take like the David Duke type stance, hey, every race has the right to preserve itself, you know, and that that includes the white race. And the way we do that is segregation. We need our own land, and um, as we'll we'll see here in the coming chapters of Revelation, that uh, we, we shall get it. Um, now, it's not going to happen maybe the way people thought that it might happen. No, it's uh, not going to be a signal event. It's going to be a process. Everything in the Revelation, there are yep. a couple of signal events prophesied in the, Re- in the Revelation, which enable us to see the event and see what God said and look back and see that the world word of God is true. But most of the things that occur or that are prophesied to occur in the Revelation and in the prophets, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, are processes. They took centuries sometimes to to be completed. Yeah, I guess my my thing is the uh you know what what constraints are actually on all all of this from happening well we're running out of white people so i think that's kind of the ultimate constraint it says there will be some of us saved so well, well to me that's the ultimate proof of, of everything that we assert of everything that i believe that's the proof that that our race is being attacked daily and, and e- even though we don't realize it we're being in most of us don't realize what's going on we're being used as tools of jewish wars we're being abused in our society pushed out marginalized in favor of the other races and we're being encouraged and it's an insistent encouragement that we mingle ourselves and mix and intermarry with these other races it's the handwriting's on the wall five six generations of that and we're gone yeah, there's only X amount of time left for all this to take place, because um, so that would be the ultimate constraint, I think. And see, and it also, what other what other people can this possibly be describing? You know, no flesh would be saved. Well, what other? I mean, the black race population exploding, um, Asian population. You know, some of the advanced countries are kind of evening out, like Japan and China, but Asians are not getting flooded. Uh, with Africans, um, they're in well, no danger. They're in no danger of going extinct. Japan and China are probably at the extent of their resources. What allows a people to grow in in population are its resources. It's that simple. Yep. We have been pumping food and food technology into Africa for a hundred years now. 
we created the population explosion in Africa ever since the 1960s, which has resulted in this overflow of Africans into white lands today. We created that. Yeah, it was we, impossible we, we, 50 years ago. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've created all of this because we didn't, uh, we didn't follow God's law. Well, well, right. It's our punishment. But but it, it's yeah you know there are so many dichotomies in in modern Christian thinking. For instance, most Christians should understand from the Bible that when a nation is punished by God, that it's stricken with famine. Real simple. It's a real simple concept from the Old Testament. If your nation is stricken with famine, it's a punishment from God. So what do we do? We take these alien nations that are stricken with famine. We should understand they're being punished from God, but we feed them. We send them all our food. Yeah, and meanwhile, what population, who's actually running out of people? You know, it's, well, it's well, right now. If like you Catholic, look at our, I'm sorry. If you look at our tax system and the idea of expendable income and, and produce production of children, if you're making 50000 a year with your wife, and you could live on that and plan on having two children, and I come and say, I'm going to tax 10% of your income yet to give it to me, there's scratch, scratch one kid. We can only afford one kid now, sweetheart. Yeah, and, and where's a lot of that tax money going? It's going to f to feed and clothe right. other races. It's you know, going it's, to the welfare. It's, it's there to, to, to feed and clothe the mestizo taking your job or... So, so we, our middle class families have been paying 20, 30% of their income in additional taxes since the formation of the Great Society in 1968. And all the Great Society has done is to give us a great Negro and Mestizo problem. Yeah. I, I mean, okay, like, like I was going to say, Catholic Charities. Now, how many white Catholics do, does Catholic Charities help? You know, all I see him doing is importing Somalians. Which will never be civilized. If we could not, yet, you know, the English had a presence in Africa, and the Germans, and the Dutch, and, and even the Spanish in places. They had a large presence in Africa for 300 years, 400 years, before we ever got this idea that we should bring the Africans here. If the Africans were adaptable to Western civilization, don't you think they would have adapted to it for those 400 years that we were in Africa trying to teach these bastards how to feed themselves? Well, what the any hell? way you want to slice it, they're not really compatible with our society. And so I don't why think... bring them here? It's just a yeah. total disconnect. So when you do bring them here, um, you know, the, the blacks that try to rise up they find out, well, hey, they, they get into corporate America and uh, uh, they have a hard time competing for the higher-end jobs. And uh, um, it, it, it's, it's frustrating because they're not numerically represented. You know, like if, if a few black people make it, um, uh, you know, a lot of others don't. So they're, it, it's not a real great fit for them. The, the bottom line is this. These other races, these, we, we are basically sheep. The Bible has described us as sheep 
all throughout scriptures, from New Testament, Old Testament, it's all the way back in the Psalms, where sheep. And, and whites prove that they're sheep time and time again when they're led by the nose by these Jewish Judas goats right down the path to their destruction. We're sheep. Now, these blacks, these Mexicans, these Indians, the, all these other races are basically wolves. They are predators. If you look at their, that their behavior in their native lands, they are scavengers and hunter-gatherers. They do not settle down, build societies, create wonderful farms that can feed a whole community or a whole state. And, and everybody could be happy and content with their communion and their fellowship with, with the, the other members of the community. They do not do that. We do that everywhere we go. But they do never do that. They only seek to devour what they can, everything they can, at any given time, and that's how they function, that's how they always function. And that's why their numbers were always so small without our artificial intervention. So they're wolves. We're sheep, and they're wolves. And the only thing they're never going to adapt to our society. They are just going to destroy us. And when they run out of food, they're going to eat us. There's no doubt. Or they're going to try. The only thing that explains what's going on today is the Camp of the Saints scenario in Revelation chapter 20. That's next. And that's an overview chapter. It's an yeah, umbrella. We'll, I was going to say, we'll, we will cover that in the next show. We're right. going to dive into that. And, and that's... That the end, the solution to Revelation chapter 20 is actually in the marriage supper of the Lamb of Revelation chapter 18 and, and Revelation chapter 19. So Revelation chapter 20 is another umbrella chapter. It's, it's, um, I'll explain Hebrew parallelism at the beginning of the next program. Maybe people will understand better how the Hebrew literary device is to describe the same thing in two or three ways so that you could understand it. It'll be described one way the first time and then in the next sentence sometimes or the next paragraph or the next chapter the same thing's being described just from a different perspective with different language. That's a literary device called parallelism that's employed all throughout the Old Testament and in much of the New. Yep. Okay, so I, I think we're at a pretty good stopping point here. We're getting to be about the two-hour mark, and yeah, I'm, you know, not that there's a hard time limit on these shows, but I try to keep them around two hours so we don't don't lose people. Um, I'll get bored if I. I'll probably get boring. I'm probably boring already. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm a big Bill Fink fan, and I, I listen to Bill Fink for hours on end. And I'm uh, sorry, you know, and other people are are uh, listening to the shows, and you know, I, I tell them, hey, well. You know, my, you know, I want to get a few points in, but uh, for the most part, I don't want to step on Bill Fink. So that that's kind of the goal here. So I just want to, you know, the, the the Bill Fink fans out there that listen to this show, you know, I just want them to know, hey, I'm I'm one of you, <laughs> and I'm here to listen to Bill Fink too. So 
Well, I appreciate it, and I'm humbled by it, and I, I just hope some people that hear this will go to Christagenia and look for, or Christreich.org, and, and look for the um, series I did on the Revelation. I'm going to redo it, I hope, sometime mid-2017. I actually do have a plan for my work. Um, but I, I stand behind the, the series that's there. It's about 14 podcasts, perhaps. It's gotten probably between my several sites, probably about 200,000 downloads that I know of, the 14 podcasts. I, I would recommend that people listen to that and, and get the details. We can't do the details here, right? <laughs> No, we're we're trying to do an overview. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's fourteen, and I've listened to each of those shows at least twice. And some of the end ones here that you know we're going to talk about, I've listened to five or six times. You know, when I'm bored at work or something, and I have time between calls, I I play one of them and jot down some notes so that uh, when I do this this series here, that you know we can get the get the most important points out there, and then. People can go back and investigate this stuff on their own. Right, and and, and that's where the real meat is. This is just the the, the um, synopsis. That's all it can be. I mean, thank yeah, you I mean, for having me. The, the, we're, yeah, we're trying to reach a few new people, and uh, it, we seem to be succeeding in that. Uh, the first show has been posted, and uh, uh, people, uh, I'm getting a pretty positive response from it, so... Uh, well, well, right, and and I don't expect people to just agree with everything I say. It takes years of study, and I know I'm not perfect, but yet you know I know that the the, the general outline and the major sketch of, of what I say about the revelation and and the Hebrew prophets it's true, and the proof is in the pudding. Well, and it's and the point that I'm going to try to make, especially in this next show, is now the the proof is really all around us. Um, the reason I got here was because, you know, as, as I've said before, the the picture that kind of uh, unfolds as you start to study the Bible at this level, it's all around you. It's not, you don't need to go to school to try to decipher the world events. No, it's, it's right in front of your face. And uh, we're going to really... Uh, uh, Absolutely. There's only one truth and there's only one solution. There's only one truth. None of us have the whole thing, but there's only one truth. There's not multiple competing truths in the world. That's just ridiculous to think that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess what we're doing here is we're trying to big, you know, discern as big of a chunk of it as we can, you know, but we're we're limited human beings and we don't have a crystal ball and you know, neither Bill or I can push a button and make Babylon fall or um, you know, we can't stop the flood into Europe. You know, all we can do is is observe and uh, throw out our analysis. Well, well, the first the, the first step to awakening is in in informing people as to what's going on, and and somebody's going to take this message and run further with it. Somebody who listens to it is going to do something more with it. I, I just know that's the way it works from having observed it for all these years. Yeah, so I guess our job is, you know, put the info out there and then, uh, you know, prepare. Like Christ said, you don't know when, when the kingdom is coming. Right. You don't know when. No idea. And I've seen people, don't go preparation crazy, because I've seen people lay up thousands of dollars in MRIs and watch them expire 30 years later. 
So I know people personally that have done that. Yeah, we're we're not we're not saying push the panic button and get stored, you know, storable food and then hunker down in the bunker. Uh, right. You know, there may be a time for that, but you know, I don't think we're there yet. I I think it's a ways off, but not. I don't think it's that far off. You know, but it's it's good to prepare at least a little bit. But yeah, don't waste all your income on on uh, e foods direct or you know those people. No, anybody with any common sense that that has any means should have a couple of months of food stored up. I don't. I, I got a couple of weeks maybe, but it, it's we're, we're hoping to do better. You, you, yeah, you me, me too. And it's like, hey, you, you may want to, you know, I guess if I had advice for people today, I would say, you know, if you can get a part-time job or maybe a paper route and, and take that money and, and salt it away, that probably wouldn't be a bad idea, you know. Maybe he gets a few ounces of silver, you know, if the banking system collapses, you at least have something, uh, you know, get some food. You know, you can't eat gold, you can't eat silver, you can't right. drink it. Um, and, you know, I, I heard one of these, uh, Alex Jones had a, one of these elite prep guys on once, and he said, you know, a lot of people buy like six months of food, but if the whole thing hits the fan and there's a massive amount of people just wandering the streets starving to death, you know, and you've got all this food stored up. You know, are you going to be able to defend it? Right, you're a target, and and you you know if you um, it, if the shit hit the fan and the the infrastructure fell and the grocery stores weren't getting food, and I had some food, and you came to me with gold, your gold's useless to me. Your, yeah, your I mean, gold is useless. Gold is useless. When when a system falls, gold is useless. You know, silver might be helpful on a barter type level. You know, well, but well, right, a small amount of silver, fine. Even a small amount of gold in, in, in easily exchangeable pieces is fine. But don't amass large quantities of gold. I'm going to take your gold. The, yeah, the only I mean, thing that's really useful, what's really useful, and the only thing that's useful, is the ability to produce food. And few of us have that, but that's the only thing that's really useful. A couple of animals, a few acres, a garden, and you're okay. Yeah, if you can defend all that. If you, you know. can defend it, right. But that's where communities come in of, of people of like mind. And, and and then you can't really get into the organized compound because the government's going to crush you, right? So well, you're better off just staying underground, under the radar, and, and trying to acquire the ability to produce food and a network of Christian-minded people willing to join the endeavor with you. That that's that. There's ways to um. That there's ways to do that that won't raise any attention. If you could do that, you're better off. Not all of us can do that. So so we better put hope in God because He tells us that. He'll take care of us. And if we're going to survive, it's because he wants us to survive. That's the bottom line. Yeah, I, yeah, I think the, I think it's key to find like-minded people in your area, you know. Right, absolutely. Because you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. You know, no man is an island. Very important. So, okay, with that said... Uh, um, I think we've covered, uh, once again, a lot of ground here. Uh, show number three. Uh, you know, the plan is maybe to wrap it up with this next show, but you know, I'm not going to put artificial limits on it. Um, if Bill Fink goes off and uh, just 
hits us with a ton of useful info. Well, we're not going to we're not going to artificially, you know, uh, lock him down. We're not going to throw Bill Fink in the pit. So well, well I'm just going to try to be me and say what yeah. uh, comes to mind that I think has to be said. I, I really do appreciate you having me. I hope it encourages some people to check out Christagenia. Okay, which That's is awesome. a huge place. It, yeah, it, cr- yeah, and if, if you're hearing this on some other, you know, venue than my blog or Bill's, uh, you can you can find Bill at Christogenia.org. And it don't matter how you spell it, because Google will find it. Yep, and I'm I'm at donaldfox.wordpress.com, and uh, we look forward uh, to the next show. And uh, good night and God bless. Thank you. God bless. Praise Christ.